It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead Silent Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hi, this is the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Slate's movie critic, Dana Stevens, and I'm here to talk about Late Night, the new Mindy Kaling-scripted, Nisha Ganatra-directed, Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling-starring comedy with Sam Adams. Hello, Sam Adams. Hello. You are a senior editor at Slate. I am. Uh, thank you for coming in to discuss Late Night with me. And on the phone from the Bay Area, we have Ingu Kang, another Slate culture writer. Hi, Ingu. Hi. Uh, you and I have already talked a little bit about Late Night on a podcast because we covered it on the last Late Culture Gab Fest, but we have not gotten to spoil. We haven't gotten to really dig deep into the plot and uh, and details of stuff that happens in the last third. So I'm looking forward to spoiling with you. Let's get into that muck. All right. So um, I feel like everybody must know the basic premise of Late Night because it's on every bus stop. But shall we set it up briefly? Um, as we begin Late Night, uh, who is Mindy Kaling's character and what does she seek? This is like a screenwriting class. Who is she and what does she want, Sam? Mindy Kaling is Molly Patel, who is sort of an aspiring uh, comedy writer who hasn't really made any particular steps in that direction. Her main uh, qualification is kind of cracking jokes at the chemical plant where she works. But um, she's a big fan of Catherine Newberry, who is a talk show host played by Emma Thompson, who's been on the air for 30 years. Kind of a highbrow uh, network uh, talk show host, if that such a thing is possible. She likes to have one of her favorite guests is Doris Kearns Goodwin. And uh, Catherine gets the message from the new head of the network, played by Amy Ryan, that she needs to kind of shake things up or she's going to be taken off the air. Um, so Catherine decides that she has a, despite being the sort of female late night pioneer, she has a writing staff composed entirely of middle-aged white men um, and decides that the way to shake things up, or actually one of those middle-aged white men suggests that the way to shake things up is to hire a female person of color um, to her staff. And Mindy Kaling uh, becomes that person. Yes. Okay, so just stop there for a, for a quick timeout. I want to ask you, Ingu, what you think of that whole hiring process plot point at the beginning, because it becomes important later that Mindy Kaling is a, quote, diversity hire, right? She herself acknowledges that, and there's some kind of discussions about it with the rest of the writing staff later on. Um, but another thing that she is, is a hire from completely outside the, the institution of comedy writing. She is actually someone who works in a chemical plant. Was it in Pennsylvania that the chemical plant is? I believe that's correct. Right? Yeah. And then she moves to Queens to try to start her, her comedy career. Um, and her only qualification seems to be hosting these amateur, you know, open mic comedy nights near the chemical plant. I, this it's In other words, it's a very strange world that this movie posits where it's unsexist enough that Emma Thompson has been running a late night show for 30 years successfully, but it's sexist enough that there aren't any other female candidates or diverse candidates in the field except for this person from completely outside. So that's a lot to ask the viewer to accept. Yeah, I think in order for you to sort of get on board with the movie, you just have to accept like seven different things. 
at all times that like probably would never exist. Um, but you sort of have to go along with it in order for the movie to make sense and like do its magic on you. I think if you are able to make those um, concessions to the movie, then it's fun. Yeah, I got stuck on that a little bit. I saw the movie when it uh, premiered at Sundance and it was a, sort of a big hit there, although very much sort of an atypical Sundance movie. And I wrote a piece then just to kind of in indulge this reaction where I got stuck on that aspect of it because, uh, you know, one way to look at this movie, there's this very famous moment in the 80s when Joan Rivers, who had been this frequent uh, host, uh, sort of guest host on uh, The Tonight Show with, with Johnny Carson, um, the moment came to replace him. And because she had been committed the disloyal act of going and having her own show, which apparently was the equivalent of, of stabbing him back, she, she ba Carson basically blackballed her. And that was why uh, Leno ended up getting the job. But that I never of, spoke to her again, which is just yes. so cold. And so that's like a major fork in the road. So I, you know, I got stuck for a while on this kind of alternate history aspect of this because the timing about lines up, you know, that was about 30 years ago. So it's kind of like, what if Joan Rivers had gotten a show then? And I was just thinking about like, how different would things be then? Because I mean, the, the situation for, you know, female hosts of, of uh, you know, late night shows is still terrible. You know, it's a struggle to have Samantha Bee is kind of regularly on the air now, but it is a struggle Didn't to have. Didn't Busy Phillips show just Yeah, Busy Phillips just got canceled. Michelle Wolf's show got canceled. There's another one coming in the fall, but it is a struggle to have two on the air at the same time, let alone more than two. Um, so, you know, the, what other cultural dominoes would have fallen in the last 30 years if Joan Rivers or someone like her had actually been on the air all that time? It's just something I kept thinking about, but it is, you know, part of what this movie is asserting is that those cultural touchstones kind of matter and that having people in those positions um, changes the way that we think about the entire landscape. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting about the movie, but also sort of just like I was like very hard for me to accept is this idea that Catherine would be this uh, female cultural touchstone and then care so little about that, that she would essentially not care that her writers were all white men. Um, one of whom apparently got his job like literally from his father because his father had also been a writer for her. And so that for me, I think was like even more than like the long running highfalutin uh, female late night host thing. The thing I couldn't really quite get over was the fact that she just would care so little that she would have no female writers. Right. I mean, I think that it's hard to do with, with the movie that I've kind of reconciled it. And I may just be, I think a lot of other people just went with it immediately. So it's just my block that I've gotten past is it. I think despite the fact that the movie is called Late Night, it's really not about Late Night. It's kind of about, you know, workplace dynamics and, and it's, you know, broadly applicable across a lot of. So the fact that it isn't the fact that like 30 Rock seems to have more specifically to say about like the dynamics of running this kind of like on air, you know, variety show is not um you're just going to have to put that aside. Yeah, and when you do put it aside, I forgot, I usually go around the table at the beginning and see if everybody had a generally positive or negative reaction. Like, when you do put it aside and accept the verisimilitude of this alternate universe that it posits, did you like the movie? I did. I mean, I really like it on a character level. I mean, I think Emma Thompson's character and her performance is just kind of magnificent in this. She's the, you know, the best thing about it. Both the me. writing, I would say, and the acting, right? Yeah. I mean, just the existence of that character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I like the relationship between her and, and Mindy Kaling's character a lot, too. That's kind of where it works for me. Um, some of the broader swings that it takes maybe don't connect for me, but I really... Uh, kind of enjoy and like onto it, like on that level. 
What about you, Inga? Would you would you generally say that this is a movie you'd send people to see? Yeah, I think the Thompson performance is ridiculously fun, and I sort of like that the I love the idea of like a female mentor and like a female protege sort of having a little rom-com because I think it's like the kind of thing that you don't get very often. I think the movie that we're constantly comparing this to as culture writers is the Devil Wears Prada. And I feel like, you know, 10 years after that movie's premiere, everyone sort of, a lot of people are in agreement that like the movie kind of beats the ending. And so to have sort of a, not to, get ahead in the spoiling, but to have basically a, a happy ending for the mentor and the protege, I thought was like very sweet. And the way that they came together, I thought was also quite nice. Right. Well, Miranda Priestly, the character Meryl Streep plays in Devil Wears Prada, is much more the villain of the movie. I mean, she's a big kind of lovable comic villain, but she is a person who needs to get a comeuppance and does get her comeuppance in the end. And uh, and Emma Thompson's character is just not placed in, in any way in that position in this movie. I mean, she is the antagonist in the sense that she's what makes life difficult for everyone, but she is not the person that you want to see kind of, you know, get hers in the end. I mean, I think the other thing is that for Miranda Priestly, she is this like singularly devilish figure. And in late night, Emma Thompson's issue is that she is complacent, just like every other male late night host. And so you almost don't hold that against her, even if like that complacency, again, doesn't really quite work for the character. Yeah, complacency is not a, a feature that you often see in movies about entertainment, right? I mean, about unless it really is like an old, washed-up person that's on their way out. Like, this is sort of about someone conquering their own professional complacency. At least Emma Thompson's storyline is about that. And that's a really unusual storyline in a, in a workplace comedy. Right. I mean, she is... Her, Catherine Newbery is I mean, a character who is really kind of resting on her laurels. I mean, she is... Um, this is some of the writing I kind of like more of the movie. She is kind of unbelievably disconnected from her writer's room to the extent that she doesn't know the names of the men in it and refers to them by number and, in fact, doesn't realize that one of them has been dead for, like, seven years. Um, (laughs) uh, So, yeah, so she is really just... um, She has very firm ideas about what she wants them not to do, which are particularly to make any jokes that that touch on her gender anyway. Um, But other than that, she just wants the sort of, you know, cookie-cutter, like, vaguely, you know... I guess topical but not political jokes that uh, you know pretty much every late night monologue thrives on, and and really that's all the contact she wants with them. She just wants like the one writer to show with a piece of paper at the beginning of the show, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say just to push back a little on something Ingo said earlier that I I believe her in- internalized sexism, Emma Thompson's character's internalized sexism. I think it makes a, se- a certain amount of sense in the universe that she lives in and the the traits that her character wants to project on TV. That um that she'd be fine with an all male writers room that she doesn't want to tell jokes about gender you know that joke about is it a joke about abortion that, yes, that yeah. Molly writes for her um that she ends up skipping you know in the first monologue that she in which she could have incorporated some of Molly's writing and to me that was fascinating because at this point in the comedy landscape it seems like we either get uh you know badass women who know that they're badass women and are trying to sort of better the the lot of all women or we get just uh, doormats, you know, and the the fact that she's something in between, that she's a very strong character, but she's not necessarily interested in empowering other women is a is a complex subject position for her to speak from. That Emma Thompson character is 
written so fully and performed so beautifully and like her internalized sexism was like the one bit of that character that I really wish had gotten more development because I think it was suggesting that it was there or that she had to sort of like minimize um, certain features of herself, of her political beliefs or her feminism or whatever in order to get ahead. But we just like didn't quite get it. Right. I mean, there's there's an implication we see at one point um, and Molly kind of has to bring this up to her because Molly, I think we mentioned, is like this huge comedy nerd, although she doesn't really have much experience doing it professionally. So she, you know, not only loves Catherine show, but loves like her stand up from the 80s. And at one point kind of plays her this clip of her doing this bit in this, you know, kind of classically like horrible sweater and, um, you know, gelled up hair and, <laughs> in and front whatever. of a brick wall. Yes, exactly. Like talking about her kind of uh, clinical depression. Um, and that's, you know, so it's not just her femininity that she's kind of gone away from it is like anything personal. And there's there's it's interesting that this movie kind of overlaps with they're the kind of, you know, cultural and, and racial and, and sort of gender aspects of what's going on there. And there's also it's also just a story about kind of trends in comedy reminded me in some way of um, Mike Birbiglia's uh, Sleepwalk With Me, which is basically a story about him learning to stop telling jokes and start telling stories about himself um, to the extent that he now does things that are almost, you know, that are more like like theater than, than stand up comedy. But that has been you know, so much the push for at least a certain kind of, of comedy in the last um, several years, you know, that it's like telling jokes is kind of, you know, just the corniest, like hackiest thing you can do. And that you should either be like kind of telling like, you know, anti-jokes or you need to be like doing something that's more like, uh, you know, kind of one person, you know, monologue, um, often like delving into your own life. And basically that's... Um, sort of the moral of the story in a way is that both the characters have to kind of you know, sort of mine their own experience, like whatever that is in order to, um, you know, connect with an audience. Yeah. Let's start talking about what happens as Molly shakes up the newsroom. So she writes that first joke. It is a joke about, I believe, abortion. It doesn't make it into the monologue. There's a sense that she is um, a thorn in the side of the writer's room, sort of, right? And she's this strange combination of she's this ingenue who's brand new to the world, you know, something that's familiar to us from even The Devil Wears Prada or, you know, tons of workplace comedies that have this young woman exploring a world that she's the, the, the newcomer in and the misfit in. But she also has, if anything, an excess of confidence, right? I mean, she also sits in those writers' room meetings and feels perfectly fine just bossing everyone on the team around about where, what direction the show needs to move in. And um, and again, that was something that I guess you could say is an inconsistency in her character, but it's also a complexity that I really liked. I mean, I don't think it was a contradiction for her character. I think I feel like the character that Mindy Kaling plays is sort of like a caricature of the ingenue rather than like a straight ahead ingenue. And so for me, I think what Mindy Kaling is doing with her character is using it as like a vehicle to cut down genre tropes. And so basically Molly's uh, like over the top ingenueness it gives Catherine like the opportunity to rant about like absurdly confident newcomers who are coming in and sort of like criticizing things about and criticizing how the show is working without giving her any solutions. And that felt like Mindy Kaling saying like, oh, like no one actually needs this. Needs what? In real life, no one needs someone who is like doing the work of criticism without doing like the work of finding solutions. 
Um, and then in the show, I think in a actual writer's room situation or like literally any workplace, no one needs to be that ingenue who comes in and sort of like makes demands on how things should work, which is like a very common movie trope. That's the whole kind of writer's room dynamic too, is we don't need you to tell us what's wrong. We know what's wrong. We need you to tell us how to fix it. Um, you know, so, it, and it seems like at least some of the people, they may have been sort of, they may have given up on trying to do anything better, but it seems like at least a good chunk of Catherine's writers know that the monologue is not very good, but they've also just, they know that if they write anything better, she's just going to kind of, you know, wave it off. Uh, so they've sort of stopped trying and Molly has not yet been schooled to basically stop trying to make anything better. And that's the turning point, essentially, in, in her relationship with Catherine, right, is the moment when she doesn't just sort of tear down what's happening, but start to try to reconceive what the show could possibly be. And I wish we gotten, had gotten to see a little bit more of that. I mean, that speaks to a general, not quite a criticism, but just a, a, a sadness, something I feel missing from this movie is a little bit more process of what goes into making a late night show. I think that would have been interesting in itself. And it also would have made for more opportunities for good jokes and good character moments. I mean, we sort of see that the writers come in in the morning and sit around and spitball ideas and then take notes to Catherine. And then they kind of fast forward the explanation in the movie and say, oh, and then we start taping at six or, or whatever it is. And you don't really quite see what all the steps are. Um, you know, how many rejections essentially a joke has to go through before it finally makes it into the monologue. That was something I would have liked to see. There was like a really fun montage where one of the writers explains to Molly how everything works. And sort of he outlines like we come in at like 10 o'clock, like this is what we do at 12. This is what we do at two. And it like gives you a outline of how the jokes come together for each show. But like the images that you see do not line up at all with what you're being told. Yeah, and well, so, it seemed the montage also kind of skimmed over about three quarters of the day, you know, when most of the actual um, fighting it out about what makes it into the monologue and what doesn't and how the show is structured would have happened. So, for example, those sketches that you see Mindy Kaling's character dream up, um, things like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get you a cab because I'm white, you know, the moments that they kind of start to use Catherine's privilege as part of the, the joke of the show, we don't see those get workshopped or suggested. We just see the final Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details result of each of them. So as Molly is rolling up her sleeves and really changing the Catherine Newberry show into something a little more modern and a little bit more, I guess you could say, diverse or feminist, there's also a B-plot going on in the writer's room, which involves her prospective romance with a couple of different writers and also her arguments with them about what she's doing at the show. Do, do, do either of you have, have thoughts about that, that middle section of the movie where Molly is sort of finding her place in the writer's room? One of the other things I really like about 
the way that Mindy Kaling wrote this ingenue part as a sort of, again, like a satire of an ingenue, is that she, uh, Molly goes in and she is this like very girly, chirpy, bubbly personality. And she says, and she like slowly gets all of that sort of like sucked away from her, partly by like the overwhelming doodliness of the environment. And it's not like masculine per se, but there's like a certain like joylessness to the entire enterprise. And so essentially she feels very isolated. She goes into the bathroom, the women's bathroom, which she then finds out it has sort of been converted to like the men's poop room because, <laughs> the men, because like no woman was using it. And then she uh, does things like cry at her desk. And basically a guy who decides to sort of become her like half mentor, like, uh, basically tells her, like, you need to shut the fuck up. Like, that is, like, the best advice I can give you. And so you see her get really mad, and you see her sort of saying things like, I will not be marginalized by the iron fist of white privilege that pervades this work environment, which is, like, on the one hand, sort of, like, eh, it's a little bit of, like, what's happening around here. But on the other hand, um, Mindy Kaling is really poking fun at Molly's willingness to let her emotional self roam free at the office. And so, I don't know, I, I continually got the sense that like there were like parts of the screenplay where Mindy Kaling, who based a lot of this stuff on like her, her mid-20s uh, career in the writer's room of the office, was sort of like poking fun at herself. But I do love that she, one of the things that we do eventually see is like Molly figuring out that she can sort of like take the punches and then also like fight back so that she, her thin skin grows like pretty thick, I think. Right. I mean, that bathroom um, element that you mentioned is like, that's one of like sort of the the great jokes in the movie to me, because it, it says so much about kind of how workplaces like do and do and don't adapt to uh, you know out of systemic you know inadequacies it's like well we put in a women's room you know but like Catherine doesn't use it because she's got her own and like and there are no women on staff to use it so it just becomes the place where the men like take their smelly crap so that their own bathroom doesn't stink um so it's like well we we you know we, we built the thing and now actually getting people in here who might end up using it is like not <laughs> that piece of the problem doesn't get fixed you know, they just put in the structure and then don't actually populate it. Right. Yeah. When when it was first established that Mindy Kaling was both the only woman and the only woman of color in the writer's room, a part of me thought, really, in 2019, there wouldn't be a little bit more, at least token diversity than that. But I mean, when you look at the numbers out there in late night writing teams in 2019, it is pretty depressing. Right. There's an article in the Los Angeles Times um, today by Meredith Blake that uh, where she interviews a bunch of um, women late night writers. But just the, the numbers in that are pretty, um, I guess not startling if you follow this thing, but just to see them laid out one after another. She goes down the, the percentage of uh, women on the late night writing staffs, and the highest on Full Frontal with Samantha B is uh, 45%. Of, so almost almost halfway there, almost parody. The lowest, all the way down at the bottom, uh, Bill Mayer and uh, Conan shows both have 17, 17, 18%, two women on their writing staff. But even a, a show like uh, Colbert, which is actually the one that um, Mindy went and kind of shadowed some of the writers when she was working on this, um, they have uh, four women on a staff of 22, 18%. So the numbers are really like pretty dire across yeah. the board. Yeah. And, and then the movie does pretty much confront that 
head on with this kind of ongoing joking but not joking argument that that Mindy Kaling's character has with um, the the head monologue writer played by Reed Scott about whether or not she was a diversity hire. I mean, there's like a point at which uh, Emma Thompson flatly tells her, like, you were a diversity hire. But like, I think she also gets advice from Emma Thompson's husband, who is played by who is played by John Lithgow, and it's sort of this like mentory, very like kind-hearted figure. If you, it doesn't really matter if you're a diversity hire. If you, your job is to like show them that like you're more than a diversity hire. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the uh, press around this movie has been about Mindy Kaling saying that when she was hired on The Office, um, coming out of like an NBC diversity program, that she was really ashamed of being known as like the diversity hire. And so I think a lot of that is like her figuring out like how not to feel shameful about it. And I think she won like one or two writing Emmys like for her work on that show for the script that she wrote. And so I, I don't know, like it's like a very inspirational story, like behind the scenes. Yeah, I really like that aspect of the movie, too, where that, that conversation with with Emma Thompson, where she's like, well, I don't want to be, you know, to feel like a diversity hire. And Emma Thompson's just like, well, you you were. Like, that is that is how you got this job, and that's how Minnie Kaling got her job on The Office. And that's not to say that she didn't deserve it, it didn't do, but it just you have to kind of, you know, she has to own that. Like, that is how she ended up in, in that job. And I, I, I do really like the way that her character just kind of takes that on. It was like, okay, that's, that's how I got the job. Now, like, now what are you going to do with it? There's, like, also, like, a couple of scenes where the current writers are sort of resentful about like her hiring, especially because she replaces a guy that Emma Thompson's character fires very abruptly. And so they say things like, it's a really hostile environment to be an educated white male. And that line is actually spoken by um, Mindy Kaling's character's love interest in the movie. And essentially they sort of like, and so like Molly overhears this and they get into like a little bit of a tussle. And they thought like the, script gave her like a very good comeback which is i'd rather be a diversity hire than a nepotism hire which is what that character is because he's the one who inherited his writer's job he's the one who who inherited his job from his dad and so the line continues at least i had to beat out every other woman and minority to get here you just had to be born Right. And I mean, I mean, you, I mean, the, so many of these comedy jobs kind of come from just closed networks, like looking at that, that uh, L.A. Times article um, when Samantha Bee's question there, just, I feel like most of Hollywood is governed by whose lacrosse team you were rivals at. And I'm not oh, sure God. if you look at like Conan's writing staff, I'm sure there are more people there who worked on the Harvard Lampoon than there are women on it. I mean, and it's um, they talk about in that article, too, there's just a, a you know sort of a pipeline issue where they'll get love, you know, just throw a job open for uh, you know, submissions for people to send in packets and they'll get, you know, 250, 300 applications from men and, and 50 from women. But it, it's, uh, you know, they're not looking in the right places like the word kind of isn't getting out to to people. And those are um, those kind of closed loops of just, you know, hi, you know, hiring people that, you know, which always seems like, oh, well, you want to have some idea of what a person's like before you hire them. But it just is how, you know, the thing kind of replicates itself over and over which again. Which is like, 
allegorized in the movie when Tom, um, the love interest, tries to get his younger brother hired on the show. And basically, Molly overhears like everything that the other writers are telling the little brother to say at his interview and then says it herself. So we've talked about Reed Scott, who is the who plays Tom, who's the head writer. I think he calls himself the head monologue writer. He frequently calls himself that because he likes to boast about his superiority at the in the writer's room. But we haven't talked about the other love interest who becomes a love interest of both female characters, both of Emma Thompson's and Mindy Kaling's character, played by Hugh Dancy, who to me feels like he's the handsome guy of a decade ago, right? He's sort of like the, the go-to babe from, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And so hey, having him play this maybe more slightly wizened hottie on the, on the writer's room staff seemed like an interesting casting choice to me. Um, but he is also apparently kind of a horn dog who goes after every woman who's anywhere near the set. <laughs> which, which, given the set, is maybe not that many women. Right. <laughs> it basically gives him two opportunities, and he seems to have conquered both of them. Uh, we don't find out until later that he has this past affair with Emma Thompson that's been covered up. Yeah, but they do they do eventually establish that his character had an affair with Emma Thompson when her, her husband is, is um, sort of seriously ill, and so she cheated on her um, you know, her sick husband with one of her writers for the show. And then that's, that kind of blows up into, I guess that's kind of the third act complication for this movie is that that kind of blows up into a big scandal. And in addition to being this kind of, you know, highbrow um, kind of dullard and that killing her in the ratings. And she also has this uh, now people don't like her either. But at that point, she has started to win back people's hearts and minds a little bit, right? Like it's, it's post the rejuvenation of the show that the news about the Hugh Dancy affair comes out. Right. Um, but you're right. That's what that's what essentially sparks the, the the crisis in the movie that makes us have to resolve her story, John Lithgow's story, and and Mindy Kaling's as well. Oh, it, I think it's because like uh, Emma Thompson's like is like very curt to like a comedy manager who overhears this, and so as like payback, the comedy manager uh, decides to like leak the news of the affair. Right. And after that comedy manager betrays her in that way, she um, sits down with her writing staff and says, OK, we're not addressing this on the show. It's it's private. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up. And you all have to continue writing jokes that don't address it in any way. And I believe it's implied that the show actually continues on, sort of stiltedly lumbers forward with that policy for at least a few episodes. And refresh my memory. What is it that turns that turns her around? How does Catherine Newbery decide, no, I am going to talk about it on air and, and be honest and own up to the affair? I don't think there was, like, a direct line from A to B in terms of, like, her changing her mind. But the sense that I got was that she has this, like, very interesting conversation with her husband, played by John Lithgow. And basically, he forgives her for having the affair and having his forgiveness, like, in her pocket. She feels more emboldened to talk about this affair on the show. Which is something that she does of her own volition. It's not that the writer's room creates a statement for her to say. She just abandons her monologue and tells the truth. Right. And again, this sort of plays into this. I mean, all these issues are kind of conversion, but this this idea now that comedy um, needs to be, or at least often does well, when it's personal. We don't want the sort of like old school showbiz motto where like late night hosts basically kind of aren't people. They're just kind of professional joke tellers and they would never let their personal life or personal feelings intrude on the air and that's actually not uh, how audiences kind of connect with people anymore and and it goes along with that 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 part of that personality that you own is who you are as a person including your 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 background and your race and your gender so he, she has to like admit that she's a, a white woman and that informs her perspective and and it, it's not 
kind of universalized in a way that completely denies like the specificity of who she is. So that's true on a kind of demographic level, but just on a very personal, like I need to talk about this horrible betrayal of my husband as well. What a husband to have, right? The John Lithgow character. He's got Parkinson's <laughs> disease. He's John- like, he's, he's completely left out at the party, just sitting alone in his room with his piano. And he still forgives her. I just, I, I want to be married to that John Lithgow. John Lithgow in his like total like heartwarming, not his like, uh, you know, Dexter serial killer uh, persona. But yeah. So yeah, in his most kind of, you know, lovable uh, mode. Which Lithgow is, can do it all. Yes. So in spite of the fact that she wins Hearts and Minds by opening up in her monologue and confessing to the affair, Emma Thompson's character is still threatened with losing her show by the head of the network, Amy Ryan. I love Amy Ryan, by the way, in this very small role as this steely female network head who comes into her dressing room and says, you know, great, I'm glad that you're winning over your audience, but nonetheless, you're out. And this shock comic played by Ike Barinholtz, who's been groomed to take her place, is in fact going to take her place anyway. But shortly after that, we see the Ike Barinholtz character appearing on the show as a guest. And Sam, take it away. Uh, She basically declines to do it. She's not going to kind of, you know, cut her own throat in order to make things easier on the network or for Ike Barinholtz. Right. As she's been urged to do by the Reed Scott character. By Reed Scott. And and, and Molly Minnie character says, no, like, don't, you know, don't make it easy for them. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. But there's no reason that you need to you know, make them look good and you're not really saving face. You're just kind of, you know, writing yourself out of the story is a little grace note for this. And it's not, you know, not the way for a 30 year career to end. And yeah, it's a great, I think it's a great scene where she, uh, she awkwardly refuses to hand it off on the air. In fact, we haven't really mentioned it, but there's, there's a few great scenes of her interviewing people on air that made me wish there had been even more of that. Like when the, uh, the YouTuber storms off in, in fury and all those moments. Well, um, uh, yeah, and the YouTuber, she has this kind of young, you know, female YouTuber on it. And it's basically the YouTuber is like, you know, and they're doing this sort of, I don't know, what typical late night interview. And then the YouTuber is like, oh, you know what? I'm like, I know you just had me on here to like make fun of like young people in YouTube. But actually, I have like 75 million followers and I know how many people watch your show. So fuck you. And then she just storms uh, off. She also says, like, I only came on the show because my mom likes you. Yeah. yeah, I wish there had been a little bit more of that generational warfare happening um, on, on, on her couch as she's interviewing people, right? Because the Internet isn't, doesn't really figure that largely into this movie, except in the jokes about how Catherine Newberry knows nothing about it and doesn't want to learn anything about it. Yes, and how Slate writes think pieces about her affair. Oh, that's right. Can you remind me of Slate's little cameo? I believe it's a slut-shaming in the workplace is everyone's problem. <laughs> I remember scanning closely for a um, uh, byline, and byline. there was none provided. <laughs> there, there is. I think we have, we have our own. Ingu and I have our own ideas about who might have written it. But uh, yeah, there there there's been some debate, uh, internal slate debate about whether or not that seems like a fair slate headline or not. But I think I think we think it's a good joke. It's nice to get slate's name in in lights in the movie yeah. anyway. So the next big plot development we have to deal with is uh, Molly's firing. So immediately after Emma refuses to step down, um, Molly gets fired from the writer's room because she wants to... What is she, what is she doing? She's Ingo? hosting like a like sort of benefit night at some theater. And and uh, Catherine wants it's all the writers. Cancer. Right, yes, it's a cancer because benefit. Oh, yeah, yeah, cancer isn't funny. Yes, <laughs> I love that yes. that's the name of the event. <laughs> so good. Uh, you know, that's from somebody who's gotten handed a lot of flyers in their lifetime. Uh, yeah, so she is, and Catherine wants all the writers to stay late. And uh, and even though some of the writers are like, oh, you know, my, my kids aren't going to see me, you know, like this week or whatever, like they just, they're cowed and they do it. And Mindy, you know, Molly is like, nope. I'm going to go. I can't, you know, I promised people that I would emcee this thing. I can't not go. And she leaves and uh, she gets fired. So Molly takes off. She goes to do the Cancer Isn't Funny benefit. But there's a surprise guest at the Cancer Isn't Funny benefit because Catherine Newbury, her boss, 
follows her there and ends up showing up for an impromptu moment of stand-up herself. Inga, do you want to describe Catherine's performance? Yeah, I think this is like maybe more in like the middle of the movie, but essentially it's like a part where Catherine hasn't completed her makeover as like someone relevant again. And so she sort of goes on stage and all of her jokes bomb. And then she figures out she's going to start talking about how she's an older woman in Hollywood and how she can't wait until she's like the same age as Tom Cruise, but she can't wait until like she plays Sean Penn's mother or something. And then like in the same movie, Sean Penn will be childhood best friends with Emma Stone. Anyway, she does this like whole bit and she fig- and, and it's, it's like another stone in like the path of like her realizing that if she is more personal, then the audience will respond to her. And Emma Thompson's character deciding to take um, Mindy Kaling's character's advice as like one more part of like how the movie is structured like a uh, rom com because essentially. Emma Thompson realizes that Mindy Kaling was right all along and but like basically can't get her back because Mindy Kaling decides to get a job at Seth Meyers show. And I guess like because she has like, I don't know, single handedly figured out how to save Catherine Newberry's show, she has great clips or whatever. And so Mindy decides that she's going to move on with her life. And before we had seen her living with her aunt and uncle in Queens, and we had seen her sort of like refusing to get any sort of life. And so uh, basically Mindy is more than ready to like move on from this admittedly like pretty toxic environment and have a like actual healthy life. Um, When Emma Thompson flies in again and basically says like, actually, like, would you mind coming back to my show? Because, like, I need you or something along those lines. And it's totally like the rush to the airport moment. Yeah, in a it is. Yeah. It is. I mean, in a way, I wish that this movie had dispensed with all of the heterosexual relationships because the romance really is a workplace romance between this boss and her employee. I mean, one thing I one thing I enjoy that it does, and this may have just been an editing room choice rather than a script one, but I really like how um, with Hugh Dancy's character, like once the scandal has broken, like he just the movie just drops him like you never see him again. And it's just like, oh, we're done with him. You, know? you don't even know if he was fired, right? <laughs> no, I mean, he, I, I mean, he, he probably, I mean, he would have quit and been or been fired or something. But the movie like doesn't even bother telling you because it just like so doesn't care about him at that point. And I, I kind of enjoyed the like the cruelty with which he was just totally tossed aside. Just like oh, you don't give a shit about that guy. So Dance never mind. He's out. Yeah. But the movie does seem to care about the relationship between the Reed Scott character and Mindy Kaling's character, which, as we talked about in our uh, Culture Gab Fest live show, I found a tiny bit disappointing. Not that I don't like that Tom character. He's fine. And I guess Molly Patel deserves happiness, as do we all. But it didn't really seem necessary for me to wrap up the movie with the implication that the two of them are going on having this happy workplace romance, which is what the impression we get in that very last scene, fast forwarding a year ahead of, of Molly Patel's rehiring and seeing her co-running the monologue essentially with, with Tom. I mean, I didn't get a chance to say this when we recorded our Culture Gap segment, but I thought it was probably a little bit important in terms of like when we first meet all of these characters, like everyone has to be a monk who is devoted to running the show. And it's this like weird little nod toward work-life balance where Mindy Kaling's character is able to like, quote unquote, have it all. 
Um, and so I don't know if like that's emotionally satisfying, but I think it's thematically cohesive. Yeah, I guess in the sense that the workplace would have become a little bit less toxic in the, in the interim. Yeah, because by the end of the movie, there's a pan across the writer's room and you see that there's a lot more women and a lot more people of color than there initially was. And the implication is that Molly has come in and because she has been able to uh, work her way through a position of power, she is able to make the kinds of hires that she thinks the show should have had all along. Right. And that, that, I mean, there is something about that that felt like a little sort of like Hollywood self-congratulatory about it. Like, oh, we've like fixed the problem now. But that is like especially in in TV where the the structure is kind of more like a regular job. Like you go to an office at a you know certain time every day and you if your show gets picked up, you do it, you know, month for months at a time for years on end. Um, and there has been, you know, a big change. Um, Aline Brash McKenna from uh, Crazyest Girlfriend, the writer of the, De- the, um, the Devil Wears Prada, talked about it in the po- podcast she did with, with Julia Turner here, where she just decided to, you know, she wrote movies in the 90s because she couldn't. She was having kids and like, I can't have a TV job and like and raise a family like those two things are just fundamentally incompatible, which is why she ended up writing screenplays. And then when she started to run shows on her own, she was just like, OK, well, we, you know, we like finish a set time every day and like I'm going to you know still pick up my kids from school and stuff like that and it was just like this we don't have to have the writer's room model where everybody like comes in and you know plays darts and like looks at YouTube clips for five hours and then we finally start writing and finish up at three just <laughs> honestly be- that sounds like my writing process I mean, but moving yes, on <laughs> yes but yeah but, but yeah but it's like let's not assume that like our default writer is like a white man and like an unattached white man in his 20s who has nothing better to do and like let's make this like a like a sustainable you know, profession for people who have, you know, families family. and, 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 you know, and less, you know, sort of not like family trust funds and No, you're whatever. right. It's yeah. a utopic ending, but it's, it's a rom-com ultimately. And yeah. we want to see all these people end up okay. And it's better to have a utopic ending that, as you say, is about systemic change than a, a utopic ending that's just like she got the yes. guy. And yeah, and we should mention, I mean, Nisha Ganatra, who's, who's the director and worked on, has worked on Transparent and a bunch of other TV shows has also been like, um, you know, part of like that change as well. So, I mean, this movie very much kind of comes out of that as well. I wonder is... if there's sort of like a female showrunner ethos to that too, because I know that in Shonda Rhimes' book, The Year of Yes, she talks about how she just decided at a certain point that all of her, once she got kids, that all of her shows, uh, the writer's room would shut down at like five o'clock or six o'clock or whatever the time was. I think she said something along the lines of like, there's no such thing as like a crazy writing emergency. And so like whatever has to wait, like really does have to wait until the next day. Um, I guess if you're Shonda Rhimes, you can set those rules. Um, but I don't know, maybe other people are sort of, you got to put these ideas out there for other people to pick them up on. Right. Yeah. And someone is, you know, someone like Shonda Rhimes, like obviously has the power to do that, you know, not only for the shows that she runs, but the shows that she produces. And then that sets and other people and say, well, look at how, you know, Shonda Rhimes runs her room. Like, let's run ours like that. Right. She turned out some pretty good shows using yeah. those those hours. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this, but I, I sort of feel like the, the, the driving engine of this movie really is the Emma Thompson character. Can you imagine anyone else in the role of this this uh, Catherine Newberry late night host? I mean, certainly not after having seen her play it. I mean, it's I mean, it's not um, 
as I mentioned, this movie kind of got it was a, a I think the biggest sale at Sundance this year was like a twelve million dollar sale, um, and that was you know normally people start talking about awards at Sundance. This was not that kind of year. This was just like people are just buying like popular hits. But I feel like. I would love to see that that role in sort of supporting actor consideration at the end of the year because it is just like a magnificent performance and I, I mean I love Emma Thompson you know a great deal in a, in a great many capacities as a, as an actor and as a writer and but it's just it brings so much of the force of her personality um, and her comes through in this it's just it's she really. Um, puts a it's kind of indelible mark on this role. Yeah, and a side of her personality that you don't often see because there's something about Emma Thompson in most of her roles that just radiates this kind of, well, sort of sensible practicality, which she does radiate here, but also this just kind of open warmth and goodness. And so to, to see her play someone who is, you know, pretty emotionally shut down and cynical is a, is it's just a trip. I, I just think she really nails it. I think uh, one thing to note here is that Mindy Kaling has said she wrote the role specifically for Emma Thompson. Um, I don't think that she knew Thompson would sign on to it, but that was sort of like the picture she had in mind. The other thing I really like about this movie, even though it also does not like ring true for me in real life, is I love uh, Emma Thompson's wardrobe in this movie. She's sort of the only character who gets to have like a really outlandish uh, wardrobe and but like it's such a it's like this like remaking of Emma Thompson as a fashion plate where she has this like very like she has like a platinum swoop and I and she basically is almost never seen in a dress she's constantly in pants and blazers and right. it's like very bright sneakers and I feel like that's probably how she dresses a lot of the time like if you see her in like red carpet photos and so to give her this like glam uh, makeover like within an actual movie with like a movie wardrobe budget like that was really fun to see. I mean, there was actually a sort of minor um, flap recently on on the Twitters about um, Emma Thompson, Dame Emma Thompson, um, showing up to you know some kind of royal event in Britain wearing sneakers. It was her knighthood, right? Yes. It, was, it was when she was made Dame Emma Thompson, right? And she was like, "Well, they're designer sneakers," you know. Like she's <laughs> she's like she kind of, but people were like, "Oh, how dare she?" And she's like, "Yeah, this is this is what I wear." I mean, let's just admit it. We want her to win the Oscar just so we can see what she wears and what she says at the podium, right? It would also be great to see a comedy, a comic role this rich get an Oscar because comedy does tend to get ignored at the end of the year. Yes. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming in to discuss Late Night with me. Please come back and spoil again soon. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Dana and Sam. Thanks to all of you for listening to this Late Spoiler special. You can subscribe in the podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows that you would like us to spoil or any other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Daniel Hewitt with help from Merritt Jacob. For Sam Adams and Ingu Kang, I'm Dana Stevens. Talk to you next time. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.